All right, take your Bibles out, turn to the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, chapter number 7. Mark, chapter number 7, and we'll be taking a look at the first 13 verses uh, this morning. The verses we'll uh, be dealing with. I'll begin reading here in verse number one. The Bible says, Then came together unto him the Pharisees and certain of the scribes, which came from Jerusalem. And when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is to say, with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews, except they wash their hands oft, eat not, holding the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the market, except they wash, they eat not, and many other things there be which they have received to hold, as the washing of cups and pots, brazen vessels, and of tables. And the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why walk not thy disciples according to the, to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? He answered and said unto them, Well hath Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites, as it is written... This people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandments of God, ye hold the tradition of men, as the washing of pots and cups, and many other such things uh, ye do. And he said unto them, Full well ye reject the commandment of God, that ye may keep your own traditions. For Moses said, Honor thy father and thy mother, and whoso curseth father or mother, let him die the death. But ye say, If a man shall say to his father or mother, It is Corban, that is to say, a gift, by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, he shall be free. And ye suffer him no more to do aught for his father or his mother, making the word of God of none effect through your tradition, which ye have delivered. And many such like things do ye. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, Lord. And God, I thank you for this opportunity we have to open up your word. God, I thank you, Lord, for allowing me to preach your word this morning. And I pray, God, that you would use me as your vessel, Lord. Uh, Lord, to say what you'd have me to say, Lord. God, I pray you just give me clarity in my thoughts and in my words and just liberty in preaching this morning. And God, I pray, Father, that you would be exalted in all that I said. And Lord, I pray for those, uh, Lord, who are hearers today of the word. I pray, God, that they would be fruitful hearers of the word. I pray, God, that they would, Lord, not only hear, but respond to the word of God. That they would apply the word of God. That they would uh, submit to the truth of the word of God this morning. God, I pray if there's anyone here today who has never, uh, Lord, been born again, I pray that today would be that day, Lord, when they would call upon Christ, Lord, to be their Lord and Savior. God, I pray for believers here today. I pray, God, that you'd work in their hearts and in their lives, Lord, and just teach them the truth of your word. And, God, just have your will and way in this service. Be exalted, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, last time we were together, we found ourselves, uh, again, following up uh, right after the feeding of the 5,000. And then you had Christ walking on the sea to his disciples who were in the midst of the storm on the Sea of Galilee. And I had uh, mentioned last time that after the feeding of the 5,000, and I showed you kind of the, I, had the, I don't have the chart this morning, but that chart that I showed you, uh, after that miracle that Christ performed, uh, if you look at the course of his ministry, he had really reached, you could say, the peak of his popularity amongst the multitudes. And we see that in how the multitudes responded to Christ. Remember, they tried to make him king. They tried to force Christ uh, to become their king. Uh, but Jesus, knowing the hearts of men, knew, again, that they were not actually interested in having them as their spiritual king, as having them, as, as having him as their Lord and Savior. Uh, they were, the multitudes were concerned about the temporal, about the material, about having their physical needs met, about having a free meal from Christ. Uh, they were focused on political revolution, but Jesus didn't come for that. Jesus Christ came uh, for the sake of spiritual transformation in the hearts of men. Jesus came for the purpose of, 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 of spiritual change and eternal change in the hearts of men as they received the truth of the word of God. As Luke tells us, Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. 
So the multitudes completely missed the point of why Christ came. And that is why after the feeding of the 5,000, and as we work our way through the remainder of the Gospel of Mark here, you'll see the multitudes begin turning away from Christ. All right, they're not actually interested in, 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 in the spiritual realities that Christ has offered to them of the new birth and of eternal life and of, of spiritual change and of taking up the cross and following Christ. Now, they want a free meal. Again, they want a political revolution over the Romans. Again, that's what they're focused on. And they miss the point of the first coming of Jesus Christ. And again, we've, we've dealt with the multitudes and talked about the multitudes many times in this series. But there's another group we've also talked about. We haven't talked about them in a while, but that is the religious establishment. That is apostate Judaism, again, in the first century. The scribes and the Pharisees, again, primarily were the ones who made up this religious establishment. And as we have seen, they have already made up their minds regarding Jesus Christ. They don't like Christ. They see Christ as a threat to their control over the people. And they've already tried to discredit Christ multiple times. And they've, they've, they've plotted in how they can destroy Christ. Because Jesus Christ is a threat to their apostate religion. And they know that. And therefore, again, they do everything they, they can do, um, including going so far as to say that he's doing his miracles in the power of Satan. Remember that back in, in Mark chapter number 3? Again, they, they went that far to make such an audacious statement uh, because they, again, they, they don't like Christ. They, uh, they hate Christ. They want to destroy Christ because he speaks the truth. And we see that Jesus responds to the multitudes um, in a different way than he responds to the religious apostate uh, establishment of his day. Uh, Jesus was, was patient with the multitudes. Uh, Jesus was quick to show compassion on the multitudes. Uh, he saw them as sheep not having a shepherd. Again, he, he, he saw them as, as those who, again, who needed a shepherd to come and, again, who, to bring them into the fold of truth. Uh, but Jesus, again, was, as we've seen, was very quick to denounce the religious leaders of his day. Jesus was very quick to denounce the religious apostasy of his day. Jesus didn't mince words whenever it came to denouncing the apostate false shepherds that were deceiving the people and misleading the people of that day. And again, it's the same thing today. Again, I, I believe that, again, a, a pastor, again, who is doing his job will be, again, won't shy away from, uh, again, calling out false doctrine and, and apostasy and reproving the evil works of darkness, which the Bible tells us to do. Uh, these fall, Why? Because false shepherds, wolves in sheep's clothing, mislead people. They deceive people. They destroy people here and also eternally, again, through their false teaching and through their false doctrine. And today we have another incident here in Mark 7 where Jesus has a confrontation with the apostate religious leaders of his day. So let's begin in verses 1 through 5. The first thing we find here is the accusation that is made by the Pharisees and the scribes. The accusation that is made. Take a look at verse number one. And the first thing we find here is the profile of the accusers. Not the first time. Again, we've seen them, so we won't go overly in depth with this. Uh, but the Pharisees and the scribes. Take a look at verse one. Then came together unto him uh, the Pharisees and certain of the scribes which came from Jerusalem. Now, Jesus didn't go seeking out these scribes and Pharisees. They sought him out, coming so far as Jerusalem. Now, Jesus was ministering up in the north country. He was ministering up in primarily in the Galilean region, up near the Sea of Galilee, like I showed you on the map last week. Uh, but these people are coming from Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, you could say, is the headquarters of apostate Judaism. All right, this is where, again, this is where the big wigs are. This is where, again, the, these religious leaders are coming for, uh, coming from. Again, this, this apostate religion is centered in Jerusalem. And they seek out Christ. But why are they seeking out Christ? They're not seeking him out to learn of him. They're not seeking him out to worship him. They're not seeking him out to, to you know, honor him and follow his teachings. They're seeking him out to oppose him. They're seeking him out to discredit him. Again, in his claim to be the Messiah. Turn back to Mark chapter 3. Let's do a little bit of review. Mark chapter number 3. 
We've already seen a couple of these incidents, uh, these confrontations that Christ has with the Pharisees and the scribes. And back in Mark 3, we find here the Pharisees and scribes came from Jerusalem. And like I said earlier, they accused him of casting out demons by the power of Satan. But Jesus made it clear that that's totally illogical. Again, a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. And again, Jesus uh, again exposed uh, just the, 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 that foolish statement they made. But take a look at verse number 22 of chapter 3. And the scribes which came down from Jerusalem said, He hath Beelzebub, and by the prince of the devils casteth he out devils. Again, they'll do anything they can to discredit Christ in the eyes of the people because they don't want the people following after Christ. All right, they want to keep the people in their again in their in their religious system of bondage. All right, they, they don't want them freed by Christ and by the truth of the Word of God, which again is the nature of the Word of God. It, again, it, it's uh, again it frees people from deception and from the power of sin. Uh, go back, same chapter, chapter three. Go back to verse number two. We see here that the intent of these Pharisees and scribes again was to oppose him. Verse number two of the same chapter, Mark three. It says, and they watched him, whether he would heal on the Sabbath day. Why? Why were they doing that? That they might accuse him. All right. So remember, they had all that we talked about the Sabbath day. And uh, again, the fact that God commanded the Jews to observe the Sabbath day. Uh, but the Pharisees and the scribes and the apostate religious system of the day had added so many uh, rules and regulations upon the Sabbath day that it didn't. It was again, they, they totally departed from the commandment of God and they exchanged truth for tradition. Uh, so they, they watched him to accuse him to see what he would do on the Sabbath day to see whether that he would keep uh, again the, their man made traditions. Uh, jump down to verse number six. Again, we, we, we've already looked at this text here. We know Jesus did heal the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath day in the synagogue. But take a look at verse number 6 of the same chapter. The Bible says that following this miracle of healing, it says, And the Pharisees went forth and straightway took counsel with the Herodians against him, how they might destroy him. Remember, the Pharisees and the Herodians were two opposing groups. But opposing groups can come together whenever it comes to the opposition of truth. That's what you find here. The Pharisees, the Herodians, again, who are normally bitter enemies, again, whenever it comes to opposing Christ, they're willing to join hands together for the purpose of, of destroying uh, Jesus Christ. So we see here the Pharisees hated Christ. They were constantly trying to find some way to destroy him, to discredit him, and to do away with with Jesus Christ. Come back to Mark chapter number seven, and we find it's been a while since we've seen this this the, this religious delegation here, but they're back. All right, they made the trip once again from Jerusalem, and we again we can imply we know what the intent is. The intent isn't to worship Christ. The intent of this visit is to oppose the ministry of Christ, to watch him, to accuse him, to destroy him, to discredit him. That that is the purpose of why they're back. So take a look at verse number two, verse number five. We find here the substance of their accusation. The substance of their accusation. What do they accuse Christ of this time? Take a look at verse two. And when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defile, that is to say with unwashed hands, they found faults. Take a look at verse five. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why walk not thy disciples according to the, according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashing hands? One of the reasons why the Pharisees and the scribes hated Christ is because he didn't go along with their man-made traditions. Rather, what Jesus did is Jesus pointed people back to the authority of the word of God. And they didn't like that. All right. Jesus pointed people back to the authority of what God has said in his word. But the rabbis and the religious system of that day had built, again, all these extra rules and traditions and regulations that are not found in the word of God to the point where they had departed from the truth of the word. And we see here there, there were many traditions. Some of them uh, involved the Sabbath day, as we saw um, in some, some time ago in a previous sermon. But it also involved hand washing. 
Now, I'll recognize here that this hand washing, again, this was not like we do today, uh, where we wash hands for sanitary reasons, all right, before we eat food. There's nothing, nothing wrong with that. Uh, we want to make it a binding rule, but it's probably good to wash your hands before you eat food. But this hand washing here, here was a ceremonial cleansing. It was a very detailed uh, ceremonial cleansing that they imposed upon the people, and they required of the people before they ate food. So the Pharisees and the scribes, again, they're standing somewhere close to the disciples, and the disciples have a quick meal to eat. Again, they're, they're constantly go, coming and going, and uh, again, they're, they're busy with ministry. And they see the disciples, and they take their bread and they eat their food, but they didn't go through the ceremonial washing that the Pharisees and scribes thought they should have done. All right? Again, they... they They accused him of eating with defiled hands and not following the tradition of the elders. So we see this accusation. Verses 3 and 4 give us a little bit more background behind the accusation and help us kind of understand what is this this all about? I mean, what is this ceremonial cleansing that they imposed upon the people of that day? Well, the Jewish leaders of Christ's day had devised this elaborate tradition. They required the people to wash their hands in a certain way before eating their meals. Uh, in Bible historians, Bible teachers uh, explain the ceremony a little bit more in depth. Uh, there was, for example, a prescribed amount of water that was to be used. Uh, there was a prescribed method that was to be used to wash their hands. Again, they were to have their hands raised as they washed their hands and Again, have it run. The water was to run down to their elbows and a whole lot of other things that were involved uh, with this ceremonial cleansing. Furthermore, we also see this not only involved their hands, but also, as you see in verse number four, or let's actually read here, verse three and four. It says, For the Pharisees and all the Jews, except they wash their hands off, eat not, holding the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the market, except they wash, they eat not. We'll deal with that in just a moment. And many other things there be which they have received to hold as the washing of cups and pots and brazen vessels and of tables. All right, so there was this ceremonial washing, this ceremonial cleansing where it was very detailed, it was very elaborate, and they were to go through this washing before they partook of food. They were to wash their hands all the way down to their elbows in a certain way with a certain amount of water, but also, again, their, their pots and their pans and their cups and their vessels and their tables also had to go through this cleansing as well. Not only that, if they went to the market, again, a Bible historian say, give us a little bit more depth with this. Again, they were to wash a certain way before they ate in case their clothing touched a Gentile. All right. Now, again, in the eyes of the Jews, Gentiles were unclean. They were defiled. All right. Many Jews would pass around a city of Gentiles so that in their eyes, they wouldn't be defiled by these uh, by these unclean Gentiles. All right, but we find here that even if they went to the market just in case their clothing might have rubbed against a Gentile, they didn't want to be defiled by by a Gentile, and therefore they would have to go through this elaborate system of washing even after going to the market. And the Bible tells us in Matthew 23, verse 4, uh, the Bible makes it clear that the Pharisees and the scribes placed heavy burdens upon the people. And many of these burdens, they didn't even keep themselves. All right? they, were, they, they were hypocrites in the true sense of the word. Uh, verse 23, uh, verse four, or Matthew 23, verse 4 says, For they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne, and lay them on men's shoulders. You remember back to some of the regulations regarding the Sabbath day. You know? And I, I gave you a list of all those regulations. I mean, that would be a heavy weight to be borne. Have to do all those things on the Sabbath day? You know, and even before you eat a meal, you have to go through this elaborate. What if you're hungry? You know, what if you're out working in the field and you come in and you're hungry? You want to you want to bite eat. You can't do it unless you go through this elaborate a ceremonial washing that takes quite a bit of time to do. Again, they, they had imposed many burdens upon the people. Matthew 23 verse four goes on. It says, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. All right, so it says here they impose these heavy burdens upon the people, grievous to be borne, but they don't even move them with, again, they don't even follow them themselves. All right, the problem with this elaborate system of ceremonial cleansing was that it, it was unscriptural. All right, it, it, it added to the word of God. It was not based upon the law of God. It was not based upon, again, Moses never commanded them to do this. 
Right? Moses never told the Jewish people to go through these. Again, yes, there were certain washings they had to go through with tabernacle service, but they decided to go even further. The Pharisees did and the rabbis did. Again, the Jews of that day did. And add many more burdens, uh, go way beyond what Scripture says regarding uh, these washings. Again, what they did was according to the traditions of the elders. Um, one Bible teacher uh, again says this, and I think this this kind of clarifies some things. He says, and I quote, he says, this was a tradition that had built up around an important spiritual truth, but they had lost the truth in the symbol. The tradition started in Old Testament times when God commanded the priests who were to minister in the temple to wash their hands. The practice was intended to be a reminder that when they went into the presence of God, they had to be cleaned in their hearts. Before long, the truth that you have to be clean in your hearts was lost, and they became occupied with having clean hands. Gradually, more and more details were added, even the idea that if you didn't go through the ceremony, a demon would get you. All right, so again, you see, again, they, they imposed these things upon the word of God and added all these extra, uh, again, these, these, these rules and burdens and regulations that were, again, extra biblical, not according to the law of Moses, not according to what God had given in his word. I mean, they even told the people, again, like this Bible teacher says here, again, if you don't go through this, then, again, you're, you're going to be susceptible to having a demon come after you. Again, all sorts of, again, all sorts of uh, crazy theology that they had. All right, so we see here the accusation against Christ, but let's consider in verses 6 through 13 the answer by Christ. And in verses 6 through 9, Jesus makes it clear, uh, or Jesus responds to the accusation by the scribes and Pharisees by exposing their apostasy, by exposing that they have departed from the word of God. They may seem religious, they appear religious, they claim to be religious and devoted to God, but they're full of dead men. Their hearts are, again, within, they're full of dead men's bones. They're, they're whitewashed sepulchers on the inside, in Christ says in other passages. And they, they are a generation of vipers. Again, they are, again, evil on the inside. And Christ exposes their religious apostasy by revealing to them that through their traditions, they have forsaken the truth of the word of God, whether they realize it or not. Through their traditions, they had actually forsaken the truth of what God had given in his word. And we see the first thing here, Jesus shows us the fruit of their man-made traditions. Uh, verses 6 through 9. He answered and said unto them, Well hath Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. So you see here, again, the progression of their compromise and of their apostasy. The first fruit of their man-made traditions was that of hypocrisy. We see that here in verse number six. Jesus quotes the prophet Isaiah. Again, he says, Isaiah hath, hath prophesied of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honoreth me with their lips. But notice here, but their heart is far from me. Now, Jesus here is quoting from Isaiah 29, verses thir verse 13, that says this. This is Isaiah. Wherefore the Lord said, For as much as this people draw near me with their mouth, and their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. Not the precept of God, but the precept of men. And this is the problem in Isaiah's day. Again, as he rebuked the religious compromise and apostasy of his day. And this is the problem in the days of Christ. And it's still a problem today. All right, but again, this is, a, this is an ongoing problem. And this was a problem with the Pharisees of old is that they drew nigh to God. They honored him with their lips. They boasted of their piety. They boasted of their devotion to God. But Jesus exposed their heart. Jesus showed them that the religious system they had was merely a facade. There was no substance to it. Why? Because their heart wasn't in it. It was just a show. It was a facade. They were play actors, and again, in a religious game, playing like they were devoted to God, when in actuality they, they were not. And they followed the precepts of men. That was the problem, is they followed the precepts of men and not the precepts of God. And whenever we add traditions to the word of God and follow the precepts of men rather than the precepts of God, one of the fruits of that is often hypocrisy. 
where it becomes easy to, to go through the motions, to go through some religious ritual. And there are uh, probably millions of people doing that. You know, throughout our land today, who are meeting in some, again, in, in some church and going through some religious motions, again, and they have no idea what they're doing. But again, it's just, maybe it's what they grew up with. Maybe it's, uh, again, they, it, it's to ease their guilty conscience. Again, whatever the reason is, again, there's, there's multitudes of people right now that are going through religious motions and religious rituals, but their heart is far from God. See, God calls us to draw near to him with our heart. To love him with all of our strength, with all of our might, with all of our heart. God calls us to worship him and serve him from the heart. And the problem with the Pharisees is they, they knew how to honor God with their lips. They paid lip service to God. Surely they boasted of their great devotion to God. And people stood in awe of the Pharisees. They honored God with their lips, but their, 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 their heart was far from God. Their heart wasn't truly devoted to God. It was far from God. They were corrupt. They were sinful. Their heart was full of sin and iniquity. Their heart was full of corruption, not true devotion to God. Again, for if they were truly devoted to God, again, they would not follow the precepts of men. They would follow the precepts of God. You know, many people go through a religious ritual every Sunday. Again, and they're no better for it. Maybe it eases their guilty conscience, but they're no better for it. Many people profess that they know God, but in works they deny him. They pay great lip service to God and talk about their devotion to God and sing praises to God, but their heart is far from God. And it's, it's the trap of hypocrisy. It's the sin of hypocrisy that the Pharisees were guilty of. We see, secondly, the second fruit is that of empty worship. Take a look at verse 7. Empty worship. says, Jesus says, how be it in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. You know, in the eyes of God, their, their worship was vain. Their worship was empty. And similar to what I said before, there's many people who, again, will offer up worship to God today, but God won't accept it. It's not acceptable worship. Again, we, we don't get to decide how to worship God. And many people offer up an empty worship to God, a, a, a vain worship to God. Why was this? Well, verse 7 tells us right here, again, why was their worship in vain? Why was their worship empty? They just went through the motions. But why did that happen? Here's the reason. Because they taught for doctrines the commandments of men. In other words, they took their man-made traditions and they elevated them to the level of God's word, of God's revelation. Right? They, they, they spoke of their human traditions as if they were from God whenever they were not truly from God. Their problem was that they honored the traditions of men and the voice of the rabbis more than the word of God and the voice of God spoken through his word. In one example of this, a second century rabbi, Rabbi Eliezer, says this. And this shows you, again, the, the thought of these people of that day. Again, this is first century. This is from a second century rabbi. He says this. He says, he who expounds the scriptures in opposition to the tradition has no share in the world to come. Right, so pretty much he, he makes it a salvation issue. He says those who, again, hold the scripture, who expound the scripture, but who oppose the traditions, the traditions of the rabbis, they have no hope to come. Again, heaven, again, isn't theirs. And there's no hope of salvation for them. In a, a, a collection of Jewish traditions is called the Mishnah, found in the Talmud, it records this. It says, again, the, the Jews say this, It is a greater offense to teach anything contrary to the voice of the rabbis than to contradict scripture itself. That's from the Mishnah. Again, that, that's from the Talmud. That's from a, a Jewish collection of writings that have been passed down over time. Let me read that one more time. It is, it is a greater offense to teach anything contrary to the voice of the rabbis than to contradict the scripture itself. An apostate Judaism that was in Christ's day was the fruit of elevating man's traditions and the, and the voice of the rabbis again, over the sufficient word of God, over the divine revelation of God, over God's voice, what he has given to us in his word. But lest we think that this was simply a first century issue, again, it's not. And don't be mistaken about that. Sometimes we think, well, that just happened a long time ago. 
Now, there's still people today that do the same thing. There's many people today that take the voice of some great person that they esteem as a prophet, again, or the writings of some person, and they elevate it to the level of Scripture. And they're doing the same thing that the Pharisees are doing. And whether that's the Mormons, again, elevating the, the, the writings of their so-called prophets or, or, or their, their founder, Joseph Smith, to the, to the level of Scripture. Or whether it's Jehovah's Witnesses elevating, again, the, the watchtower, again, and the teachings contained therein to the level of Scripture. Or whether it's the Roman Catholic Church. Again, and they, they will tell you. Again, you don't have to go searching for this. Again, they will tell you in their official documents that they elevate sacred tradition to the same level as sacred scripture. Again, they're, they're open about that. They, don't, they give equal weight to church tradition and what popes have said down through the years than they do to the word of God. Let me give you an example of this. This is taken from one of their official documents uh, called the Dogmatic Constitution on Divine Revelation. Um, the Roman Catholic Church says this. They say sacred tradition and sacred scripture then are bound closely together and communicate one with the other. For both of them, flowing out of the same divine wellspring, come together in some fashion to form one thing and move towards the same goal. Thus it comes about that the church does not draw her certainty about all revealed truths from the Holy Scriptures alone. Hence, both scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal feelings of devotion and reverence. I mean, they're clear about it. I mean, that was that was, you know, put together and, and promulgated by a pope you know, at the Second Vatican Council. I mean, they're very clear that, again, they hold sacred tradition at the same level as, as sacred scripture. And it's a very dangerous thing to do. Why is that? Because the Bible warns us in Colossians 2, verse 8. It says, Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. As a church, we would hold to the position of sola scriptura. Scripture alone as our only authority, as our exclusive authority for all of faith and all of practice. Right? It, it, is, it is a Baptistic distinctive we hold to. Right? The Bible alone is sufficient. The Bible alone is our only rule for all of faith and for all of practice. Whenever we abandon that position, we will soon head down a pathway of compromise and eventual apostasy. I mean, look at the cults. That's how they all again. That's how they all started. And you see where they are today. Look at the Roman Catholic Church. That's how it started. And you see where it is today. And these, these are apostate religious groups that honor God with their lips, but their heart is far from Him. Why? Because they elevate the precepts of men, uh, not just equal with, but even above the precepts of God, the sufficient Word of God. It leads to compromise. It leads ultimately to apostasy. Take a look at verses 8 and verse number 9. We see here the, the third fruit is that of the abandonment of the truth. This is what eventually happens. Whenever you don't hold to the word of God alone as your source of authority, it eventually leads to compromise, apostasy, abandonment of the truth. And that was the problem of first century Judaism. Take a look at verse 8 and 9. It says, For laying aside the commandment of God, ye hold the tradition of men as the washing of pots and cups and many other such things like ye do. Are like things you do. And he said unto them, Full well ye reject the commandments of God, that ye may keep your own tradition. So what did they do? They laid aside the commandments of God, even though I'm sure they boasted that they were keepers of God's commandments. But they weren't. All right? they, they laid aside the commandments of God in order to keep their own traditions of men. And when you begin adding man's words as your authority... Again, to the same level as Scripture or even above Scripture, you will eventually forsake the truth of the Word of God and go down a pathway of apostasy. You will forsake God's truth for man's truth. You will forsake truth for, for tradition. And Jesus told them, verse number, verse number 14, or verse number uh, 13, he says here, let me see what, what verse I'm trying to get to. Verse number nine, sorry. Full will you reject the commandment of God that ye may keep your own tradition. And that's, that's what has to happen. Divine truth and human tradition cannot be accepted at the same time. You have to accept one and reject the other. You may think you can hold on to both, but you can't hold on to both. Jesus says because you hold on to your tradition, you reject the commandments of God. 
You're rejecting divine truth because of your traditions. You can't accept both at the same time. And Jesus gives one example, and I'm sure there's many examples he could give, but he gives one example of how, through their tradition, they had actually forsaken the truth of the word of God. And it pertains to the the fifth commandment in Exodus chapter number 20. Take a look at verse number 12, or verse number 10 down to verse number 12. Jesus says this. He said, For Moses said, Honor thy father and thy mother, and whoso curseth father or mother, let him die the death. All right, so that's the commandment of God. Let's actually turn back there. We'll read those verses. And the Jews should have been familiar with this because this was given in the Mosaic Law. Exodus chapter number 20, if you want to turn there with me, we'll take a look at two verses here. Exodus 20, uh, verse number 12, we have, first of all, the commandment is clear. Honor your parents. All right, that's the commandment of God. That is a timeless principle that still remains today. Again, we are called to honor our parents, regardless of what age you are, or whether you're still in the home or whether you're out of the home. You're still called to honor your parents. Uh, verse number 12. The Bible says, verse 12, Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. So that's pretty clear. Right? Honor your father and your mother. Turn to, uh, uh, let's see, verse, chapter number 21, verse 27. Of Exodus chapter 21, verse number, I don't think that's the verse I'm looking for. So let me find the verse I'm looking for. Exodus chapter number 21, and take a look at. All right, I don't think this is the exact verse I'm looking for, but you see, for example, verse number uh, 15 of that chapter, it says, And he that smited his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. Uh, Verse number 17, And he that curseth his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. Again, obviously this was part of the civil uh, law of that time. Uh, But you see the severe consequence under the Mosaic law, again, of what would happen, again, if a child would disobey their parents. I mean, it, it incurred the death penalty. And that shows you, again, we say, again, how, how, again, why would it be that serious? Because God's serious about honoring your parents. All right, so much so that God said, God put that in the Mosaic Law, saying that, again, to dishonor your parents, again, incurred the death penalty. Again, under the Mosaic Law. Again, showing us that God takes this commandment seriously. You would think that the Jews at that time would recognize and would take seriously what God said about honoring their parents. This command to honor one's parents also included the responsibility to care for one's parents in their old age. Again, parents, their parents, would, people's parents would eventually get to the place in life where they physically, again, would not be well enough to care for themselves. And it was the job of the children to care for their parents in their old age. All right, that was part of honoring your, honoring your parents under the Mosaic Law was providing for them, again, caring for them, meeting their needs financially. Meeting their needs physically in their old age. But Jesus here, back in Mark chapter number 7, exposed the hypocrisy of these Pharisees here. And how through their man-made traditions, they actually violated God's law. They thought they were keeping God's law, but in reality, they weren't. They were violating a very clear commandment of God. Verse number 11. All right, so Moses said, Honor thy father and thy mother. Whoso curse the father and mother, let him die the death. Verse 11. But ye say, if a man shall say to his father or mother, it is Corban, that is to say, a gift, by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, he shall be free. And ye suffer him no more to do aught for his father or his mother. All right, so here was the Jewish tradition. They found a loophole to get out of the commandment of God. And they, the Pharisees were great at doing this. All right, at, at finding ways to get out of the clear commandments of God. And this is one of the ways they did that. Through their tradition, again, they said that a, that a child could be freed from their responsibility to care for their parents if they would pronounce Corbin, which means a gift or devoted to God, over their possessions, over their property. And in essence, what they were saying is, again, all my money, all my money is devoted to God. Therefore, I don't, sorry, parents, I don't have any money to give to you. Can you see the hypocrisy of that? 
All right, they, they were violating God's clear commandment to care for their parents by saying, in the name of serving God and in the name of being devoted to God, saying it is, again, my, my, my property, my possessions, they're devoted to the temple. They're devoted to God, and oftentimes they didn't actually end up using their money that way, but all they had to do was pronounce Corbin over their possessions, over their property, and they could get out of the commandment of God. They didn't have to care for their parents. That they would simply pronounce Corbin over their goods. All right, you, you see the hypocrisy of this. Uh, again, they, they, they found a way to get out of their obligation to care for their parents. The clear commandment of God. One Bible commentator, Harry Ironside, refers, referred to this as the very essence of selfishness under pretended piety. And thereby the word of God was made of none effect through tradition. That's exactly what it was. It was selfishness. All right. It, it was pretended piety. It was pretended devotion to God. Oh, they pretended to be devoted to God. You know, they, they dishonored their parents, actually, under in God's eyes. But in their eyes, again, they, they did it in a spiritual way. They said, well, all my stuff's devoted to God. So I can, again, I, I can get out of, you know, providing for my parents. You know, of giving them the money they need, of, of doing what, what is required of me according to God's law to care for my parents. So they did it even in the name of God, even in the name of, of, of serving God and being devoted to God. You see that, that, again, pretended piety and selfishness they had. Take a look at verse number 13. What does all this lead to? Whenever we forsake the word of God for the traditions of men... What is the end result of that? Jesus makes it clear in verse number 13. He says to these Pharisees and scribes, he says, making the word of God of none effect through your traditions, which ye have delivered, and many such like things do ye. So what did they do? They made God's word of none effect. In essence, they discarded the word of God even though they pretended to be devoted to the word of God, they actually discarded the word of God and they replaced it with human traditions. They replaced it with man-made traditions. They, they claimed to honor God. They paid God lip service, yet their heart was far from him. Why? Because they rejected the truth of God's word. They rejected the truth of God's revelation and the authority of that truth in exchange for man-made traditions. But clearly, this, isn't, this wasn't the only instance of how they did that. As verse 13 says, the, the latter part of the verse, and many such like things do ye. I mean, this was one of the many areas where, where this was evident in the life of the Pharisees. This wasn't, this wasn't the only instance. There, there were many, many examples Christ could have given, I'm sure. He says, you do many things like this. And that's often what happens, again, whenever we begin to elevate the words of men to the level of the word of God, again, it's a slow but gradual progression away from the word of God, not towards the word of God. We begin to pay more attention and give more heed to the words of men rather than to the word of God. And we may not even notice that is happening, but it happens. Again, and what happens is we compromise the word of God, we turn from the word of God, we hold to the words of men above the word of God, and what it leads to is hypocrisy, it leads to empty worship, and it leads to ultimately an abandonment of the truth. Again, it leads to an abandonment of the truth of God's word. You know, as a church, again, one of the things we go over in our membership class is again, why, why we're Baptist. And there's, there's a Baptist, uh, again, there's certain Baptist distinctives, and it's an acrostic that we go through. And the first B in Baptist stands for the fact that the Bible alone is our final authority. The Bible alone is our final authority as a church, again, for all of faith, meaning for all of what we believe and all of practice, for all of what we do as a church. All right, we're not bound to church councils. We're not bound to you know, early church fathers. We're not bound to what some pope says. We're not bound to some, uh, some creed. Again, we're not bound to mystical experiences or personal revelations. No, we're bound to the word of God. The word of God is sufficient. And we hold to the word of God. We cling to the word of God. We anchor ourselves to the word of God as a church. But the moment we begin to drift from that is the moment we go down the same pathway as the Pharisees. 
Again, in our worship becomes hypocritical and our worship becomes empty. And ultimately, again, it may, again, it's, it's like, like the, we may not even notice that it's occurring, but ultimately we abandon the truth of the word of God. And it's happened down throughout church history time and time and time and time again. You read church history and you can read of many churches that were once solid, grounded, Bible-believing, thriving, spirit-filled churches. And then a hundred years later, they're totally apostatized. And it happens more often than you realize. And I, I'm reading a devotional right now. Uh, it's a Baptist history devotional. Uh, but it talks about, again, many of these churches that, that were founded back in pioneering days or, you know, back in the 1800s when missionaries went overseas. And, you know, by, by again, they were solid churches. They were Bible-believing churches. And, again, from time to time, I'll look up some of those churches and see where they are today. And some of them still exist, but more often than not, many of those churches have apostatized. Many of those churches are not or are, are, are a mere shell of, of what they used to be. And we must hold to the word of God. We must cling to the word of God. We must be faithful to the word of God. We must test everything by the word of God. And there's many false spirits in the world today. And we must prove all things. We must test all things by the word of God. But it's not only as a church. Again, that's our position as a church. But also as individuals. We must ask ourselves. What is my final authority in life? Where do I get my beliefs from? What determines how I behave? And those things are not just created, you know, those things don't just come out of nowhere. No, our thinking, the way we think, the way we behave is going to be informed and influenced by somebody or something. It is either going to be informed by the world or it's going to be informed by the word. And the question is, again, where will your, your, your beliefs and your behavior, again, where will they find, uh, again, where will they, uh, what will their source be? Where will they come from? What is your final authority? Again, is it the word of God or is it culture? Is it the word of God or is it personal experience? Is it the word of God or is it emotions? Is it the word of God or is it uh, is it your heart? Is it the word of God or is it uh, what you read on social media? Again, what is it? What is your final authority? You know, let me encourage you with, with the same conviction we have as a church. Again, to anchor yourself to the truth of the word of God. Again, you can say, yes, again, I, I believe that and I'll hold to that. But again, if you're not in the word of God, if you're not reading the word of God, again, out, outside of church, I'm, this, this is important, yes. But through the week reading the word of God. Studying the Word of God, hearing the Word of God, listening to the Word of God, growing in the Word of God, and then you will be tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. We must anchor ourselves to the truth of the Word of God. Satan is very deceptive, he's very subtle, and there's many false spirits again, that have invaded churches all across this land and all across the world. Again, that are not that, that, that are not, again, true to the Word of God. That are not faithful to the word of God. We must be aware of those. We must be discerning. We must be Bereans. We must tie ourselves to the word of God. Again, secondly, I want to ask you this morning, is your devotion to God from the heart? Again, the first step towards abandonment of the truth is hypocrisy. And just like the Pharisees, hypocrisy, empty worship, abandonment of the truth. The first step in that cycle is hypocrisy. Paying lip service to God while your heart is far from him. Saying, yes, God, I love you. God, I'm devoted to you. You know, singing songs like we sung earlier. My Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine to thee. Again, all the follies of sin I resign. It's, it's a great song to sing. I, I, it's one of my favorite to sing. But the reality is, is, does that match my life? It's easy to sing those words. All the follies of sin I resign. Or are we harboring sins in our life? In my Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. Can the people in your life know that? Can do people know that you love Christ? If so, again, it will be evident in the way you live. Can or have you fallen into the trap of hypocrisy? Where you have an external form of religion, yes, everything looks good on the outside. But there's sin harbored on the inside. There's worldliness in the heart. There's sin in their heart. There's, there's compromise in some area in the heart. Again, God doesn't accept that kind of worship. And you, you can sing hymns. You can uh, say you're devoted to God. 
But as we've been seeing in the book of James, again, there's more to that than just saying that. Again, it's a lifestyle that begins right here with a heart devotion to the Lord. Again, and, and that's real, it's really a daily thing. You know, uh, surrendering myself to the Lord, renewing my mind in the truth of the word of God, and making sure that my life is in alignment with God's word. So that whenever we gather on the Lord's Day, whenever I sing those songs, I can actually mean them. And I can, I can sing it from the heart. And it's not vain worship. It's not hypocrisy. But I can say I truly worship God today because, yes, I, again, I, I sing those words of praise to God. But, again, it's not just coming from here. It's coming from here. That is where we want to be. Again, beware of getting to the place where the worship of God is cold and dry and just a, a form you go through and it's all external. And again, there, there's no passion in it. There's no heart in it. Again, but it's just dry, dull, and dead. Again, sing from the heart. Praise God from the heart. Again, again, exclaim your devotion to God. But make sure it's coming not just from here. But make sure it's coming from here. All right? All right, let's pray. Father, we come before you, Lord. And God, I pray, Lord, you take the truth that we've seen in your word this morning. And God, I pray that you'd apply it to hearts. I pray, God, that you'd help us to respond to your word in a right way this morning. God, I pray that we would not uh, resist the truth or, or buck against the truth of your word. But I pray that we would be people of truth, that we'd be people of the book, that come back to the word of God, that test all things by the word of God, that, ha- that are discerning, that are Bereans. Lord, and we ask for grace and strength, Lord, God, because we don't have that wisdom in ourselves to do that. God, we need your wisdom, and we pray that you'd help us, Lord, to be Bereans, Lord, in these dark and deceptive times in which we live. God, I pray that we'd anchor ourselves to the truth of your word, not merely as a church, yes, as a church, but also, Lord, as individuals and homes. Lord, I pray, Lord, that this would be the reality. Lord, that we would not, Lord, Lord, be uh, allow our thinking our living, to be more influenced by the world and by culture than it is by the timeless truth of your word. God, I pray that today we would recommit, Lord, God, to following your word, Lord, of being faithful to your word, of being discerning and making sure that, Lord, what is going in our ears, what is before our eyes, Lord, Lord, what we are allowing, Lord, within our minds, Father, Lord, is not leading us astray, but is, Lord, drawing us closer to you. And Father, I pray, Lord, that you would help us, God, as we respond to your word this morning to, Lord, examine our hearts and ask ourselves, Lord, am I truly worshiping God from the heart? Or have I fallen into a a, a dead ritual of going through the motions, of having a form but not reality? God, having a shadow of the truth but not the substance of truth. God, I pray, Lord, that we would, Lord, truly worship you from the heart. Lord, that we would not fall into the trap of honoring you with our lips while our heart is far from you. Lord, while we're harboring sin in our life. I pray, God, we wouldn't deceive ourselves. It's so easy to deceive oneself, Lord, into thinking we're, we're following you when in reality we're, we're not. And God, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to examine our hearts and to be humble enough to admit the faults we see, to admit the areas where we have gone astray. And, Lord, to be humble enough to repent and turn back to you and... And, Lord, just to get our lives where they need to be on track. Lord, that we would not fall into the traps we've seen this morning. Lord, our hearts are our hearts are prone to this, Lord. I pray that we wouldn't, Lord, see this as, as something that, that, was, that only the Pharisees, uh, Lord, were affected by. But I pray that we'd realize that every one of us could fall into this trap, Lord. God, if we don't, Lord, Lord, uh, Lord just feign the flames of, of devotion to you within our hearts. God, I pray you'd help us now to faithfully respond to your word. And I pray this in Jesus' name.